0: In 1988, Corn Flakes was losing market share to some of the healthier and uh, more novel cereals that were coming out, and so they decided to do a media campaign because some of these other commercials were coming out with nuts and fruits and all that. Even Captain Crunch came out with a reasonable facsimile of a fruit called Crunchberries. You might remember that. Anyway, the marketing campaign, the commercial was simple. A bowl of Kellogg's Corn Flakes and a skeptic who believed that cornflakes were was a cereal for uninformed people with no lives and nothing better to eat and then of course the skeptic would taste the cereal hmm and their whole countenance would change and then the audio would fade in and say cornflakes taste them again for the first time it was actually a brilliant commercial Some of you have never tasted cornflakes. You probably should. Some of you should taste them again for the very first time. Some of you have never tasted Jesus, not in a personal way. You've heard about him and you've played the church thing, but you've never really crossed the line and tasted him in a personal way. And some of you need to taste Jesus again for the very first time. I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 17. Where We'll pick up our study in the Gospel of Matthew, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Matthew 17 is an amazing text of incredible deep spiritual truth, eschatological truth, and all kinds of meanings and symbolism. But as I began my study, I couldn't get away from three very simple words that arrested my attention. They wouldn't let me go. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. After six days, if you want to know what the after refers to, just listen to Pastor Mark's message online if you missed it. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up to a very high mountain to be by themselves, and he was transfigured or transformed before their eyes, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And the three words that arrested my attention were actually three names, Peter, James, and John. And I couldn't help but think, why did Jesus take Peter, James, and John. Why did he take these fishermen, these societal bottom feeders, up the hill to meet these incredibly important people? I mean, just just last week, Jesus had to call Peter out in front of everybody and and call him Satan and say, get behind me, Satan. You're being a hindrance to me. You've let Satan get a foothold in your heart and Satan is using you, Peter, to set a trap for me to stop me from my mission. It's the same kind of trap that Pastor Mark sets for his daughter when he plays Clue with her. As I was listening to that story, I was actually grateful for that story. I'm thinking, you know, Pastor Mark, as long as you keep doing things like that, Freedom Session will always be needed at Village Church. On a good day, Peter, I mean, what a guy. On a good day, he he acted first and thought later. On a normal day, he just acted first. He was a grandstander. He was the kind of guy. He actually told Jesus, listen, down the road, if all these other moronic disciples, even if they betray you, I will never betray you. I'll go to death. And then he betrayed him three times. He was a maverick. He was a take the hill kind of a guy. But his maverick, it was laced with pride. It was laced with uh, uh, presumption. It was laced with ambition. And it was laced with impatience. James and John were no better either. Jesus might have only wanted to take one of them up the hill, but they came as a pair, kind of like the Sedin twins. You're stuck with them for life. And and they they fed, as a pair, they were dangerous. They actually fed off each other's passion and zeal to to build the kingdom that they left their careers to establish. They actually bragged one day. They said, Jesus, we shut down another disciple who wasn't really one of us because he was casting out demons in your name, but he wasn't one of us. I mean, imagine taking someone, leading them to to holiness and freedom without taking them through freedom session or village counseling. Unthinkable. Another time, Jesus sent them ahead to prepare uh, and to to area some skeptics, prepare for the coming of Jesus, and they weren't ready to receive Jesus. And John and James said, "Uh, Jesus, you want us to call down hellfire and brimstone and take them out? And and Jesus had to reprimand them and say, no, you guys kind of got it wrong. We came to save those people. You You want me to take them out? Those are the people that I've come for. And why would he take these three? Well, why not Nathaniel, the thinker? At least he would have appreciated all the Old Testament symbolism of Moses and Elijah. These were big time celebrities. Or or take Thomas, the doubter. Wipe out his doubts once and for all, because Thomas, like some of you, won't believe anything unless you experience it first. You know who I would have taken? I would have taken Judas. Keep your friends close, your enemies closer. If Jesus would have taken Judas up the hill, spent some time one-on-one, face-to-face bonding, maybe Judas, Judas would have thought twice about betraying him. You know, the real reason why I wonder why did Jesus take these three guys up the hill is I wonder, would he have picked me? Would he have picked you? I hope so. You know why I think Jesus picked Peter, James, and John? because they had a character quality that God finds irresistible. It's that same character quality that burns within the hearts of some of you 20 and 30 somethings and some of those of you who were 20 and 30 something. The character quality is zeal. Zeal is an insatiable discontent with the status quo mixed with youthful energy and devotion to an ideal. These men wanted to make a difference. They wanted their lives to count. And some of you want to make a difference in this life and you don't want to settle. And Jesus is incredibly attracted to that. And it's true that a lot of the zeal of Peter, James, and John were actually geared towards selfish ambition. You know what we do with people with zeal? We try to tame them. We try to emasculate them. We try to turn them into nice guys. You know what? I love dealing with men, working with men. You know, men are not going to lay down their life to become a nice guy. Jesus didn't try to create a bunch of 12 guys who are going to be nice guys. He wanted to take that zeal, and he wants to take your zeal, and he wants to refocus it into something, into a mission that is worth Dying for, worth living for, that is going to actually assault the course of hell and establish God's kingdom in our on earth. That's what Jesus wants to deal with. Some of your zeal and we try to tame it, but God doesn't want to because Jesus knows that he he understood zeal for his house consumes me. The local church is still the hope of the world. I've been attending Village, my wife and I have been attending Village for three years. You know why we're at Village? It's not because I needed a job. I actually had a job. We attended Village long before I got a job. It's not because of the coffee. (laughs) It's not even because of Pastor Mark's amazing sermons or the amazing worship that we get to experience every week. Those are a bonus. I'm here because of the mission. As best as I can understand it, God has uniquely called, appointed, and anointed Village Church to reach skeptical 20, 30-somethings and those who were raised and grew up in lifeless North American Christianity to lay down their lives, to reorganize their priorities, to invite the Lordship, the leadership of Jesus Christ into every area of our lives, into our values, into our priorities, into our money, into our sexuality, into our vacations, our vocations, and our celebrations, into every area of our lives. That's what God has called Village Church to do. And I get to be part of that. Listen, you need, I want you to hear very carefully, we are looking for Peter, James, and Johns. We are looking for Patricias, and Julias, and Jasmines. We are looking for those of you who want to make a difference. Listen very carefully here. Every generation, every generation has to raise up its own apostles, has to raise up its own prophets, has to raise up its own intercessors, has to raise up its own boots on the ground people who are are sick and tired of political correctness, who are willing to go against the grain, who are willing to, uh, to understand that status quo is just an emasculated definition for the mess we're in. We are looking for people who want to lay down their lives. We are looking for metagivers, givers and what a meta-giver is, it's actually the biblical definition of people who have spiritual gifts and giving. It's not just giving, we're all supposed to be giving. We're actually looking to raise up another generation and call some of you out to actually reorganize. If God's called you to make money, if God's, and this isn't about money, but this is something that I've been thinking about for a while, if God's given you a gift to make big chunks of change or if you want God to bless you, then why not give 50, 60% of that big chunk of change to the kingdom to buy buildings to establish our missions ministries? (coughs) Honestly, I was thinking because some of my friends are 55 because I'm 50, 54. Some of them are retiring. And I'm thinking, what if some of these quality people (coughs) would work another four years? and donate their entire salary to the kingdom. Why not? What about some of you young people? Would ask God, sorry, (coughs) would ask God to put you uniquely into a legal position or a teaching position or a medical position where you could influence the kingdom of God, not financially, but in values and morals and pray authoritatively. One One of the facilitators in one of our ministries here He's a medical doctor, and and I asked him as a medical doctor, I said, how many people do you pray for healing? He says, not many. I says, why not? Treat them medically as best you can. You know the situation. How about if you would go back in your room and you would pray and ask God to supernaturally come down and heal? Can you imagine the impact that would have? And that's just a couple of different examples. We're here to call you out. We're here to call you out. if that Because I know that that vision burns in some of your hearts. We're here to call you out, to walk with you, but we're also here to help develop the character you need to carry that mantle of spiritual authority. Because a lot of times, God gives a passion, He gives spiritual gifts, but our character can't carry them. And for those of you who are my age, a little younger or older, we get to be part of mentoring a generation who are going to make a huge impact in this nation, in this region. There was a time... When I was young and zealous, probably my pinnacle of ze- zealousness was 1996. Context wise, that was 11 years before the first iPhone was invented. It was long before bromances and skinny jeans were in vogue. We used, to, we used to have stretched denim. We called them leotards. And if men wore them, we called them long johns and we put pants over top of them. But anyway, I was, I was young and I was preaching. I was a lead pastor at the time and I was preaching. And all of a sudden, while I was preaching, I realized the people that really needed to hear the message I was preaching weren't in my church. And then it struck me that the people that really need to hear this message would never probably come to the church that I was leading. And so I quit. I I actually was so zealous. I should have tried to lead that church to plant the type of church that I wanted, but I didn't. I just quit. And then I presented our denomination with the best church planning proposal that they'd seen in a year and a half. And I know that because I was part of the board that authorized church plants. We gave thumbs up or thumbs down to all the other church planning proposals. (coughs) So I knew that was the very best one. If the church would be called Connections and it would be targeted to reach 20 and 30-year-old young adults for the gospel of the kingdom. I didn't even ask for money. I was going to take it, of course. I thought they'd be so enamored by my proposal they would offer money and I would humbly accept. But that's not how it went down. After the board sat and I looked at my proposal, the leader of the team looked up and he asked me a question. I think it was an unfair question. But he asked me a question and it was asked and I had to answer it. The question was, what are you going to do if we say No. And without blinking, I uttered the seven words that would set in motion the biggest failure of my life. I mean, ministry anyway. I said, I'm going to do it anyway. It was a zealous answer, for sure, right out of the playbook of Peter, James, and John, but it was also laced with pride, presumption, arrogance, impatience, defiance, and a commitment to prove to you that I've got what it takes. If you're young, which is anyone forty and under, <laughs> Listen very carefully. My inability or unwillingness to seek out godly mentors who would love me enough to affirm me, but also love me and care about me enough to speak into my life and show me my character defects, show me my flaws. Men or women who have gone before me and have some of the scars in ministry, in marriage, in parenting, in finances, in character, if I would have sought them out... I believe God could have done much more in my life. And I'm not beating myself up. I don't feel there's any condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. I feel no shame. But I was unwilling. And I think that has been one of the greatest human limitations in my life. And because God loved me so much, he orchestrated a failure to soften my heart and open my heart to receive from other people. And I'm not just talking about ministry here. This is very important. I am not talking about ministry. In fact, sometimes I actually got a mentor for ministry, but I didn't have the intelligence or the wisdom or the courage, perhaps, to ask for a mentor. Just help me be a man. Help me be a husband. Help me be a father. Teach me how to pray with my wife. Teach me what to sweat. Teach me financial wisdom, what to borrow for, what not to borrow for. I came out of Bible college, three kids, no car, a wife, and $26,000 in debt, and moved here $31,000 $31,000 salary and my rent was $900 a month. I didn't have anyone that I, was, that I was open to teaching me about, was that even wisdom, Ken? And I'm not saying borrowing the money was wrong but I never even asked God about it. I was a maverick. I was going to do great things for God. We planted the church. Oh, lesson I learned is the depth of failure God allows and orchestrates for the children he loves is often directly proportionate to our pride and our, our arrogance and unwillingness to receive from others. We planted the church. Our core group, of, uh, including my, my family of five, was five. <laughs> we did lead a number of people to Christ. In fact, we grew from five. We grew to 60 or 70, which is the size we should have been when we planted the church. But then God stopped talking to me. I did it my way. The way that seems right to man leads to death. That's when I also learned experientially, Isaiah 42, verse 8, that God said, I will not be mocked. I will not give my glory to another. We closed the church in 1999. And I tell you that story for a very important reason. If you're an idealist, If you're the kind of person that shoots for the stars, aims for the fences, that believes that if better is possible, then good is not good enough. We want you to know that we're looking for people like you. We're calling you out. We want to work with you. But we are asking you, honestly, to be humble and to be teachable. To ask some of us to speak into your lives, to speak into your marriages, to speak into your debt. Because Satan wants to take you out. And some of your character, even my my character, or no matter what your age are, we got to develop our character, and that's what God needs. We think spiritual maturity is information or spiritual gifts. That's not spiritual maturity. Spiritual maturity has to do with our character. And right now, there are people in this church. In five years, your marriage is going to be over because you've taken things for granted. You've poured your time into work or your hobbies or, or even ministry and not nurtured, and you haven't, developed the, you haven't developed the skills to work through the conflicts that you've got. There are families that are going to be torn apart because of financial debt. There's families that are going to be torn apart because of pornography addiction gets exposed. You think you're getting away with it. You're not. Satan is just patient, and Satan, from my experience, waits until he can do the ultimate damage, and that's when he exposes you. And God is giving some of you time to come forward and deal with these things, that's why we've got a counseling ministry. Very few churches these days will hire someone of their doctrine and psychology to build a counseling ministry. We just refer them out. We believe in that. We want to walk with you. That's why we've got the financial mentoring course. And we're going to roll that out with some training. That's why we've got freedom session. That's why we've got community groups. We want to walk with you. Really. So that your character can handle the calling and purpose that God has for your life. There's a flip side to this, to those of us who are a little bit older. If our younger people take us up on this, can we count on you to be healthy enough to be able to speak into their lives? Or how long are some of us going to keep looking for a mentor rather than being a mentee? And again, no condemnation. But some of you need to get back in the game. You know my personal beliefs? I don't believe retirement's a biblical plan at all. In fact, it's only a 100-year-old North American plan. You'll never hear of me retiring. I'm not going to work at the same rate, and I'll probably stop getting a salary at some point in my life. You know what I think God wants to do to those who retire? Mentor. And don't just wait for the church to have 10 people, young people who want to sit down at your feet and get all this wisdom. How about actually putting yourself in a position relationships, leveraging your, your house, leveraging your boat, your cabin, or your wisdom, etc., and actually positioning yourself in relationships with people, walking with them so that they might actually want to ask your wisdom. That's what I believe God's calling us to do. We need, we need some, some people who've been in business, godly businessmen, to mentor some of our young businessmen coming up, teaching them how to balance a day off, how to balance the ethics, how to also keep your family intact. Teach them from what we've learned and done right and what we've done wrong. Teach them how to work out things in their marriages. You know, whatever it is, uh, carpentry, bricklayers, it doesn't matter. Teach these people how. Walk with them. Some of us think we're spiritually mature and we're just spiritually old or fat. You know, you can tell the person that is kind of spiritually fat because of the one that's Lord or pastor, not Lord, pastor, give me meat. I want to be fed. Now I got adult children. If my boys came to me and said, dad, give me meat. I want to be fed. I'd say, get out, get your own meat. You're an adult. You make more than I do. Or say, like you know, you're getting a little fat there. Get on and get some exercise. You don't need more meat. You need to get in the game and exercise some of that meat off. So again, we're calling out the young people, we're also calling out some of the rest of us. You know one of the biggest wins for Alpha, we're running Alpha, and uh, it's been great. People coming to faith in Christ, people are talking about it, uh, skeptics and stuff, it's been a great family. You know one of the biggest win? The win, of course, is the people coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but one of the other big wins is we're calling some people out of retirement back to get in the game, and we're getting some people that have been that have been attending Village for, for years, but have not really been doing anything, and I'm not minimizing it, they've been serving little things, but they needed to do something they needed faith for. They needed to pray again. And when you start ministering with unbelievers, you got to pray because if God doesn't show up, if we can use that term, nothing's going to happen. And that's been the win to see some of these guys coming alive again. We've got our financial mentoring team. The big win there is not just helping people get out out of debt financially. It's some of them getting in the game, using their experiences, their gifts, and they're stretching. Some of them are putting aside money they could make so that they can help some of you get out of debt. That's where the game gets exciting. That's the Christian life. That's what I'm talking about. Some of you need to taste Jesus again for the first time. It's exciting. That's what we're calling you to. Right now we need to return to the mountain. Peter, James, and John, and Jesus. The next scene's actually a little bit humorous. Pick it up at verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Moses, and Elijah talking with him, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you want, I will make three tabernacles or tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. (laughs) Peter says, Jesus, this is good. This is good. You, me, James, John, Moses, and Elijah, this is good. You made a good, this is a core group. Think of the potential of the people we have up here. You know, this is what I was talking about, Jesus, back in the the valley when you called me Satan. That's okay. I forgave you. It was a bad day. We all make mistakes. This is what I was talking about. You don't have to go to the cross. We just got to bring people up here. Let's start a church. We'll call it Mountain View Tabernacle or Church on the Rock. We just got to bring these people up here when they see me and you and James and John. I don't know about John, but me and you and James and Moses and Elijah, they're just going to come to faith. This is what I'm talking about. And fortunately for, for, for Peter and for us, God. God interrupts it and he comes in a cloud and the message of the cloud was, Peter, shut up! This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You're my son that I love, but you cause me incredible grief and keep the angels working overtime. This is my son. Listen to him. Stop talking. Stop listening to the voices in your mind. Stop listening to all your arguments. Stop your dreaming and listen to him. Because Peter, of all the people on the mountain, you are the last person should be speaking right now. And some of us, that's your message this morning, listen to Jesus. There's some of us, the church exists for people who are skeptics, that's, that's, that's why we wear ripped jeans on stage and have the music we have and wear skinny jeans when we need to. Some of you are skeptics. You've been talking about Jesus for a while. You've been hanging out with us for a while, and you've had all the arguments of why you don't shouldn't surrender your life to Him. And God is saying to you, Stop! Stop listening to all those arguments. When the real reality is, you're just afraid to bow your knee to my Son. Listen to Him. Listen to Jesus' words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to the Father but through me. Your greatest need is to be reconciled to your creator. And you know that. You know that something inside of you just doesn't feel good enough and you haven't found it in men or women or drugs or pornography or alcohol or food or work, you know that something's missing in your life, listen to him. He is the only way to be reconciled to your father because we've got a sin problem and someone's got to take care of it. That's why he could say exclusively, I am the way. Stop listening to the screaming voices of culture that tell you that your life is about what you can put into it here on earth. Stop listening to the failures you've had. Stop listening to all your arguments and listen to Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Open your heart, open your life, and let me change it. Maybe you think you've done something unforgivable. Listen to Jesus. I have come to pay the price for the sick, not the healthy. I willingly laid open my body, my life. I was whipped for you because You've done those things you think are unforgivable. We don't have a sin problem. You don't have a sin problem. We've got an acknowledgement of sin problem. Jesus Christ already paid the price for every sin you and I will commit, including the ones you're going to commit at 4 o'clock today. Maybe you think people have done something and damaged you so much you can't come to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me, Jesus, to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted. I understand what you felt like when you were raped. I understand what it's like to grow up without a father. Joseph died young too. I understand what it's like to be rejected. I can heal you. Let me in. You need to taste Jesus for the first time. Maybe you don't know everything about him. I didn't know everything about my wife when I got married to her. But I remember sitting in my blue pickup truck waiting for her to get off shift the moment I decided I actually want her. I want to put a ring on her finger. I know enough. I want to spend the rest of my life with her. I didn't know what it would all be like. Maybe that's you today. And then there's another group of people. I call them the double lifers. I couldn't come up with a better term. It's not a good term, but... What I mean by that is those are the, those of us who have invited Jesus to be Savior and at one time Lord of our lives, but you lead a double life. You've got a public life and you've got a private life. You've got secrets going on in your life. It's a dual life. Secret sins, unforgiveness, bitterness. You're not what you're pure. You do image management. You get infidelity or you got fantasy or you got anger. Hidden bank accounts, I don't know what it is. You know who you are. You think you can get away with it. You're you're like that person at the circus spinning all the tops and you think you can pull it off. I remember a, a preacher, a famous preacher once fell or he sinned his way out of ministry and he was interviewed and they asked him, when did you stop loving Jesus? And he says, I never stopped loving Jesus. I stopped fearing Jesus. You know one of Peter's biggest problems was he began to take Jesus for granted. He forgot that Jesus was God. He's so familiar. Jesus was so familiar. He had him all the time. In fact, Peter was more enamored by Moses and Elijah showing up, the supernatural. And some of us are are waiting for some supernatural thing without realizing that, that we've accepted Jesus. God, God lives inside me. God has to watch what I watch. God has to touch what I touch. God has to listen to what I listen to. God Almighty is here. We think we can get away. Did you really think that? Sometimes I, I talk to, to people, men and women, more men I talk to, that are, they've got to do a dual life, and I, and I ask them the question, what lies are you telling yourself to make that behavior okay? And if I push them long enough, a lot of lies, a lot of times they'll, they'll end up coming with a lie. I don't think anyone's going to know. No one has to know. I, I think no one will get hurt. And I think, Really? Jesus is God. Listen to him. He said there is nothing disclosed that will not be made known. Nothing that's done in secret that will not be one day blown out and portrayed in the heavens. Do you really think that if Jesus wanted to, he couldn't expose that? It's his mercy giving you opportunity to deal with that. Maybe you've given up. Maybe you think the problems are too big in your life, your marriage too far gone, your family too broken, mistakes are made. Listen, in another 10 chapters, we'll get to it in 2019, in another 10 chapters, Jesus is going to go to the cross and three days later, he is going to rise again. Listen, the Bible tells us that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is living in you. If you are a follower of Christ, that same power is living within you. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, everything can be different. There's no guarantees, I get that, but things can be different. That makes a huge difference in relationships. That makes a huge difference when I'm tempted to go work on my motorcycle and there's conflict in the kitchen. That gives me the courage, it can be different. I can go back into the kitchen, take my step of faith, and trust that God will soften bodies in my heart. That makes a huge difference when I pray for unsaved loved ones and believe this is God's will and and I'm put my, drop on my knees and spend some time on my knees because Jesus rose from the dead, but some of us stop believing that. Everything can always be different. And then there's the been there, done that. You were zealous once, like Peter, James, and John, like me. You laid it all on the altar once. You gave it all up. You risked it. You sold the family farm, drank the Kool-Aid. You got the T-shirt to prove it, but you blew it. You made mistakes. Maybe you don't even know what actually happened because your motives were half right. My motives were half right when we planted the church. It wasn't all about me. I really loved lost people. I loved Jesus. Maybe you don't know what actually happened, but God didn't show up like you thought he would, like you thought he promised. You're and has been and almost was, and you're watching from the sidelines. Stop listening to the voices of failure. Stop listening to the voices of condemnation. Stop listening to the voices of hopelessness and listen to Jesus. You are my workmanship. You I have come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. You are my workmanship. You are the one that my father and I planned before the foundation of the world. Good works that you should walk in them. I have called you to make a difference. I have given you spiritual gifts. I have given you passions and you are listening to the voices of failure. Yes, let the failures and the mistakes humble you and be teachable and be not so easy to be taken out next time. But get back in the game. That's where you taste Jesus again for the first time. You know, a couple of years, the, the church plant failure really haunted me, and a lot of people tried to tell me it wasn't a failure. I knew it was. And it was some good things. God's gracious. His words preached, so God, of course he's going to back it up. But it haunted me for a few years, and I actually went to a seminar. I was back in ministry, and uh, I never really stepped out of it. It just changed. And I went to a seminar and a very, very well-known Christian speaker, author was preaching and a lot of you read his books. And he was talking about failure and when it's time, and he was talking about integrity. And I felt, I don't know if convicted, I felt afraid probably. And so I went and talked to him at the end and I, I told him my story and I asked him, what should I do? And he actually said, I think you should find a different line of work. He thought the failure and my presumption and my inability to hear God accurately probably crossed the line and God probably wouldn't use me so much. And He's a godly man. He's a good man. But he was wrong. I had to listen to Jesus. And I had to face my failures and learn how to become a trustworthy man again. That I could trust, that God could trust, and that hopefully other people could trust. I had to listen to Jesus. And that's God's calling out for you. Some of you need to taste Jesus for the very first time. And I'm going to pray with you. And some of you need to taste Jesus again for the very first time. My sermon's over, but the word of God that's spoken to your heart today will burn until you either snuff it out or respond to it. So if any of these prayers resonate in your heart, I invite you to pray with me wherever you are. first one is for those of you who are skeptics or have never really crossed the line and decided, I'm going to taste Jesus. Lord Jesus, I've heard enough today. I feel that burning or thumping in my chest and I don't want to live a casual life of no meaning or pursuit of what the world tells me is meaningful. I also see, Lord, that I'm broken. I've made mistakes. You call them sins. I confess that. I have failed. I have been selfish. I have hurt others, and others have hurt me. I need a savior. I need you to invite me up the mountain, and today I believe that you have. And I declare that I will listen to your voice you said, if anyone opens the door to their hearts, you will come in and live with him. And so I open my heart and I invite you to be my savior and my leader, to forgive my sins and live with me in my being. Thank you for entering into my life. And I commit to following you as best I can, as best I understand. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. I give you my life. And now for some of you who need to taste Jesus again for the first time. Lord Jesus, I was once a Peter, James, and John, or I wanted to be. And we both know that I invited you to be leader and Lord of my life. But things have got busy, and I've become distracted. And I've taken the gifts you've given me and abilities you've given me, and I've made them an idol, and I've lived the North American dream, which is not fulfilling. And I realize that I was called for more than this. I don't even know what that's gonna be. But something's missing, and I want to be invited up the hill. I want to see all that you have for me, and I want you to lead me back into the valley. And I ask you, Holy Spirit of God, to fill me again. I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me for My skepticism for my woundedness, for for believing that I was done, has been, I've taken you for granted, I've taken you casually, I forgot that you rose from the dead, and today I invite you, I ask you to fill me, forgive me, fill me, and give me back a calling to be used however you want, and I ask you to lead me step by step. Most of all, I thank you, Jesus, because you are inviting me up the hill. You're inviting me to follow you wherever you go. And I want to come with you. In the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you. Have a great, amazing weekend. And see you next week.